All right, audience participation part of the show. When you hear Isaiah, first thoughts. Long, very long, 66 chapters. I love my ways are not your ways and your thoughts are my thoughts are not your thoughts. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He is a major prophet. Now, why is that? Is he that much more important than, say, Micah or Malachi? No. Just for most. <laughs> um, when we talk about major and minor prophets, it's merely the length of the book. It's not at all the importance. So uh, Amos and Micah and Malachi and Hosea and Joel are of equal importance, uh, although Isaiah, uh, it's fair to say that he was much more prominent. He had a, a very long ministry, um, and his prophecy was a little unique in that he, uh, he interpreted what had happened. He explained what was happening. And he told of what would happen. Now, kind of file that away. He, he, he uh, gave interpretation to what had happened. He explained what was happening. And he predicted what would happen based on what uh, God was telling him. So, like Emily said, there all of us have favorite passages in Isaiah. And that's what drew me to uh, study it over Christmas. I, I didn't want to do another Christmas in Luke or uh, Matthew. I, I, I love the gospel accounts of the nativity, but uh, I am overcome with the wonder of God speaking into the nativity story with such precision eight centuries before Jesus was born. And so Isaiah is uh, one of the eighth century prophets, which means that the years that he prophesied were in the mid 700s uh, before Christ. Um, a little background with that. You probably have heard about uh, the what are called the messianic prophecies in Isaiah, those that directly predicted the coming of Messiah, the coming of Christ. And that's why I was drawn to it. So our series is going to be eight sermons in Isaiah. And the first three, I kind of called the prequel. Because I want to take three sermons and just look at the glory of God revealed in Isaiah. Just the, the magnificence of God. Um, and there'll be three messages that, that come out of the, the, the sort of the overview of Isaiah. And then the five messages in Advent, including Christmas Day, all have to do with the Messianic prophecies where Isaiah specifically, and in a lot of ways, very um, 
with very, very much detail, uh, spoke of the coming of Christ. And so uh, uh, we will touch on some of those, but let me kind of start the overview. The first verse of Isaiah uh, tells us the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, Isaiah chapter 1, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. There is a lot of information in that one verse. In it, we know where he mostly prophesied. So northern or southern kingdom? Southern, southern kingdom, Judah. Uh, and then, of course, Jerusalem was the capital of the southern kingdom. And uh, um, also, of course, the capital of the unified kingdom when David was uh, king and David and Solomon, Saul, David, and Solomon were the three kings uh, under the United Kingdom, the United Jerusalem, United Israel. And uh, sorry to say the United Kingdom, but some of you are thinking of the talking about Great Britain. Um, so after Solomon, the kingdom splits into northern and southern, and uh, Isaiah prophesied to the younger, the, the southern kingdom, Judah, and Jerusalem. So then it tells us the duration of his prophecy. Um, by the way, the prophecy concerning Judah and Jerusalem, if you're in the habit of marking your Bible, you might put chapters 1 through 39, because that's uh, the first 39 chapters are the uh, specific prophecies about the southern kingdom and then he begins to talk about the times that will come. So kind of past and present is in chapter 1 through 39. And then future is pretty much 40 through 66. Um, now, I say that with a little bit of an asterisk because a lot of prophecy, it's not future telling, but truth telling. So it's, it's speaking accurately about what is happening, what has happened, and what will happen. And, uh, and Isaiah spoke in all three of those, uh, those lanes. Um, probably you've read Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. Isaiah 40, comfort ye my people. The, the Christmas passages will deal with in the second part of the, the two series. This one's called Behold Your God, and we're just going to do this one for three weeks through Thanksgiving. And then the Sunday after Thanksgiving, we start a five-week series called Promises Kept, and we'll do the other five, the Messianic passages from Isaiah. So we'll spend eight weeks the rest of the year in Isaiah, so we better get it right. All right, so the book takes the name from its prophet, from its uh, uh, writer, from the prophet Isaiah. He prophesied uh, over four Judean kings, and he likely was executed by the one who followed 
uh, Hezekiah, the evil King Manasseh. And of course, their story uh, is uh, told in uh, First and Second Kings. But uh, Isaiah uh, probably spanned, um, Uzziah became king somewhere around 767 B.C., so 767 B.C., and uh, Hezekiah began his reign in 715 B.C. So it would be safe to say that um, uh, Isaiah's uh, duration or the length of his prophecy was uh, somewhere between uh, uh, 760 and um, probably 705-ish when uh, Manasseh probably had him executed. So <clears throat> even though Isaiah prophesied to the southern kingdom, he prophesied about the northern people. So he was talking about what was going on in the northern kingdom. And um, part of his prediction was that it would, uh, it, would, it would come to pass not only for the northern kingdom, but for the southern kingdom. And we know that specifically what he was predicting was the overthrow of both the northern and the southern kingdom and eventually the exile of the southern kingdom by Babylon. Now, do you remember that there are two enemies that we're talking about here? One is Assyria and the other is Babylon. So Assyria was rising in power um, you don't care about the name of the king, but Tiglath Pileser was the, the name of the king in Assyria at the time, my favorite. And uh, he had decided that he was going to conquer um, Palestine. And so he moved against the northern kingdom first. And uh, Isaiah was uh, speaking into that season. But Isaiah also correctly predicted that he would conquer the southern kingdom, uh, that, that Babylon would conquer the southern kingdom, but that was well after Isaiah was already dead. So have I just completely confused everybody? <laughs> so the story of the Assyrian, uh, um, the, the rise of the, the Syrian uh, power somewhere around 730 or so BC. Uh, it would have been during the the kingship or the kingdom of Ahaz. And um, so the, the, the book of Isaiah spans all four of these. And, um, and so we, we kind of uh, pick up in chapter one. Let's see if there's anything else. Um, chapters 40 and following assume a context during the Babylonian exile, which was about 100 years after Isaiah lived. Now, you may hear about Isaiah that 
it had three different authors, two or three different authors. Some scholars believe that since the material that was written in chapter 40 and following uh, were after Isaiah's death, that he couldn't have written. Um, I personally believe that that denies the power of predictive prophecy, that if we believe in prophecy, if we believe that God inspired Isaiah to write uh, what he wrote, then certainly it was it was in his uh, prophetic uh, capability to describe events that would happen as well as events that had happened. The only thing that is um, especially inspirational about the latter half of the prophecy is that he 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 knew that Babylon would conquer Assyria. So. Uh, if you remember our discussion in the minor prophets, there were there were a number of world powers that rose and fell. Egypt uh, fell to Assyria. Assyria fell to Babylon. Uh, Babylon ultimately fell to Persia. Persia ultimately fell to Greece. Greece fell to Rome. So you know we we have the world powers that rise and fall. Isaiah just happened to span kind of one and a half in his lifetime. He correctly described the rise of the Babylonian Empire, and he also predicted the fall of the Babylonian Empire at the hands of King Cyrus, who was uh, Persian. So again, it's it's uh, a little bit to wrap our mind around that. Uh, that that even world history lines up with biblical prophecy, and uh, and the scholars that believe that someone besides Isaiah wrote uh, chapter forty and beyond, or perhaps even two other authors, that that's that's fine. There's nothing gained or lost by um, uh, speculation, but Isaiah's prophecy, uh, I I tend to think that it's intact. I, I tend to think that it's a uh, that it's, it has unity. When, when did King Manasseh happen executed? You know the uh, six what? Uh, let's see if I had a date. Um, it would have been so. The Northern Kingdom fell in seven twenty two BC. And it would have been somewhere um, to Babylon. Well, it would have been somewhere around 705, 700, maybe even uh, 690. But uh, likely it was somewhere around 705. Um, we, he describes Hezekiah's reign. He describes... Uh, uh, do you remember the incident in Kings that we talked about when uh, the forces of Assyria were amassed against the walls of Jerusalem and Hezekiah prayed and God sent an angel and 185,000 Assyrians were killed in one day and Assyria then retreated and then they got word that Egypt was uh, 
uh, amassing a rebellion. So, so the the attack of the Assyrians on um, Jerusalem never happened because God sent an angel and wiped out a portion of a good portion of their army, and so they retreated, and uh, Jerusalem would not fall until over a hundred years later in 587 BC. So um, it, it, I, it would have been 700-ish, 705. Yeah, I couldn't find anything. Skip asked uh, if we knew with any precision when Isaiah was executed by Manasseh. And uh, I, I don't know exactly, but it would have been somewhere around 705 um, BC. The reason I ask is just because with him, with some scholars saying that he didn't write the last a uh, few chapters of uh, Isaiah. They had, to, and they said because he was deceased. Yeah. Um, again, it's it's tricky. If you didn't hear Skip, he said yeah, he asked a question about the questioning the authorship of Isaiah for the last uh, twenty six chapters of Isaiah, and and it's a fair question. You know, most scholars don't believe that Peter wrote second Peter uh, because he was dead by the time it was written. And either they compiled writings that he had uh, put on paper and never really collected, or one of his disciples wrote down what uh, he was told. And, and of course, we know that Luke is largely Peter's recollection to uh, the apostle, uh, to uh, uh, Luke the scribe, the position, and so it doesn't bother us if, if Isaiah didn't write the last 26 chapters, but we don't have any reason to believe that he did it. We believe that in this case, the, the type of, of poetry, the type of literature this is, is prophecy, and so we don't have any reason to believe that Isaiah did not have the visions from God. I mean, he described one of them in today's uh, uh, text in chapter 6, that he saw the Lord high and lifted up. Why wouldn't he receive word from the Lord about what was going to happen? And so um, we don't we don't have a reason to doubt the unity of Isaiah's authorship throughout the whole book, even though there's a, a time problem with uh, the attack of Jerusalem by the Babylonians was not until 587. All right. So what was he talking about? You know, we, we've gotten way into the weeds about uh, the history behind it, but spiritually speaking, what is it that Isaiah was prophesying? Anybody got a clue? What all prophets talked about. You're not honoring the covenants. You're not, uh, you're, you're not obeying God. You, the, the, the northern kingdom was wicked. Uh, they, uh, you know, had 50 years before Assyria conquered them for them to turn around their, uh, their ways, and they didn't. He just continued to preach to a rebellious people, and we'll see that uh, in just a minute. So he warned the northern kingdom that if they didn't uh, uh, change their ways, that uh, they would fall, and in 722, they did. And then in the latter half of the book, 
He warns Judah that their sin would bring captivity at the hands of Babylon. And uh, we get a little predictor of that in chapter 39 with the visit of the Babylonian envoys where Hezekiah showed him the treasury and everything else. Uh, look at all the riches we have here in Israel. And uh, later on, uh, Isaiah was trying to tell Hezekiah, uh, don't, there's, they're not your friends. Uh, they're, they are enemies of God. They are enemies of Israel. And sure enough, in just a little while, uh, they would bring an army. So the fall of Jerusalem didn't take place until, like we said, 587, 586. Um, but Isaiah uh, extrapolates that the destruction of Judah and the, uh, the captivity of the people would eventually end. So Isaiah also spoke to the restoration. Uh, that's beginning in chapter 40 and, and on. God would redeem his people from Babylon just as he had rescued them from Egypt. Isaiah predicts the rise of Cyrus the Persian, who would unite the Medes and the Persians and then conquer Babylon. And the decree of Cyrus would be what would allow the Jews to return to Israel following their captivity in Babylon. So there's the historical uh, context. If, if I was to say what is the key uh, verse for the first uh, part of the, the book, maybe the, the, the first 39 chapters, look at chapter 12, verse 2, uh, chapter 12, verse 2. He says, behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. That's what I would consider to be sort of the theme verse for the first uh, 39 chapters or so. Because... Uh, similar to the cycle of the judges, which you probably remember from the study in the judges, that Israel would live in peace, then they would sin, then they would be judged usually at the hand of a foreign army. They would cry out to God. God would deliver them at the hand of a judge. They would live in peace. They would sin. They would be judged at the hands of a foreign army and so forth. Well, Isaiah lived in a time where he was trying to say, you can't disrespect the covenant that God has extended to you forever. He, he has sent you prophets. He has sent you uh, judges. He has, he has sent you uh, people who would, who would steer you in the right direction. You had King David. You had King Solomon. Uh, you, you've had the, the prophets. And yet you don't listen. And so the message of Isaiah is a strong message of judgment, but it is not uh, without hope. And so if, um, if I was to sort of say, what are the main themes? What are we going to find as we dig into Isaiah? One, God is offended by religious practices that come out of an empty heart. 
God is offended by religious practices that come out of an empty heart. One of the, the heartbreaking things for many of you every Sunday is to see people around you that seem to be just going through the motions. To see people around you that, that don't really ever sing and don't really ever pray and don't, they're, they're just they're checking off a box that, that they've been there on Sunday. And uh, of course we can see it from where we are on you know on the front. We can we can see people that are playing on the phones and and you you kind of wonder why are you here? And that's sort of Isaiah's point. He says that that God can't honor even religious practices that are that are empty. That are that are from an empty heart. Uh, second big theme: the foolish idols that men create are destined for destruction. The foolish idols that men create are destined for destruction. Um, their idols were, um, of course, we have a big example of that. A few. Uh, when uh, Judah was conquered and Nebuchadnezzar built a statue on the plain so that people could bow down and worship the image that represented him. Uh, that was um, the Assyrians and the Babylonians, their kings uh, assumed uh, godness. Um, same would be for the Persian kings. Uh, some of them, Xerxes, uh, called himself the god king. Uh, if you saw the movie 300 about the uh, uh, Spartans who bravely defended the uh, Greek um, area called Thermopylae, the Persian king that's depicted in that movie, that's Xerxes, who uh, called himself the god king. So the it wasn't unusual for the idols of men to represent men or to represent accomplishments or to represent um, uh, conquests. And the idols of men are always destined for destruction. If we were to come in today's uh, world, we might say technology or trust in government or uh, political partisanship or sports teams, if we make those an idol, they cannot stand. Uh, we, we will see in just a minute, God is, is too holy. He is too uh, terrifying to assume that a man-made representation or a hobby or a, a belief would stand. Idols will always fall free. The only hope of the world is in one man. He is the promised Davidic king, meaning the son of David from the line of David. The servant of the Lord, the victor over all evil. Isaiah says there's only, there's only, there, there's hope, but there's only one hope. And that is the Messiah who is to come. Four, God uses everything, even human sin, for his glory. God uses everything for his glory. 
You know, Jesus was asked, who sinned, the man or his parents? And Jesus said, neither. This is that the glory of God may be revealed. So God will use anything and everything for his glory, even human sin. Last big theme that we see in Isaiah. Uh, and it's interesting because we, we talked about this a little bit today at the, the memorial service. Sometimes when we are in a lot of pain or a lot of grief, when we have a lot of unanswered questions, we humans feel like God has abandoned us. We feel like, he, where is he? I don't hear him. I don't see him. I don't, I don't know what's going on. And that's not sin in itself. For us to, to uh, be drawn to a dependence on God, for us to realize, I can't do this without him. I can't grieve without him. I can't deal with uncertainty without him. I can't handle my anxiety without him. And Isaiah didn't speak against that um, that, that uh, apprehension about things that are. He spoke against trusting in worldly things when we don't hear God. That when we don't feel like God is speaking to us, we say God must be uh, absent. He must not be trustworthy. So I'm going to put my trust in this idol or this job or this relationship or this other uh, pursuit. Uh, if, if God can't be trusted, then I will trust in something worldly. And Isaiah proclaimed the foolishness of that. He proclaimed the, the temporal nature of that. And he proclaimed that God guides all of human history and he is not surprised when we come against the struggle. It's a way that he allows us to create trust in him. All right. So let's dive into um, the first six chapters and then spend a little bit of time in chapter six. That's where I'm going to be on Sunday. So he starts in chapter one, the vision of Isaiah, talks about the kings that he spans. Um, quite a long time, 60 or 70 years. Um, the northern kingdom is uh, uh, will fall during his uh, prophecy. Um, the, if, if we were to break down the overall part of the book, the first 39 chapters, what has happened in Israel, 40 through 55 is are the messianic prophecies. That's where we'll spend our time in uh, during Advent. And then chapters 56 through 66, uh, those are the fun ones because they are prophecies of the final judgment, the judgment that is yet to come. So 1 through 39, talk about what has happened, is happening, will happen in Israel particularly the northern and then the southern kingdom. Uh, chapters 40 through 55 are prophecies of the Messiah. And then chapters 46, uh, 56 through 66 are prophecies of things in the final judgment. All right? So let's talk about these first six chapters. 
He's speaking about the wickedness of Judah. And the assumption is that the northern kingdom has already fallen. So he is speaking uh, about the northern kingdom. Uh, it's a prophecy about what has been happening there and what will happen in the southern kingdom. So when he says in verse 2, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, for the Lord has spoken, he is speaking to the southern kingdom, uh, interpreting what has and will happen in the northern kingdom. So in verse 5, why will, will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot to the head, there's no soundness in it. The whole, the whole nation is corrupt. Verse 7, your country lies desolate. He's speaking about the northern kingdom. The daughter of Zion is left like a booth in the vineyard. Uh, if the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah, he said in verse 9. And so he's prophesying to the southern kingdom, interpreting what has happened in the northern kingdom. And he said, it's coming for you too. And so in 16, he says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Do you see the irony there, anybody? He challenges them to do what they cannot do. He challenges them to clean themselves. And what does the scripture say about sin? Can we atone for our own sin? Can we, can we somehow make our uh, filthiness clean? No. Atonement is, is, is outside of us acting upon us. That was the, the death of Jesus on the cross. That's what we will see in chapter 6 in just a second. So, so he sets the stage for the gospel when he says, you guys wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice, plead the widow's cause, come, verse 18, let us reason together. Here we go. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will become like wool. If you're willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. So he says, clean up your act. But these are outward signs, outward things. Over in chapter 2. Uh, the word of Isaiah, the son of Amos, concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord, that's Sinai, of course, shall be established at the highest of mountains, shall be lifted above the hills. All the nations will come to it. They'll say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that he may walk the paths. Isaiah is a little confusing sometimes because he intersperses the messages of hope, the, the predictive prophecy of restoration in with the 
the calls of judgment. So, so the consistent theme is that we are sinful. God has judged that sin. We will pay for that sin. There will be some horrible consequence, but God will restore us. God will redeem us. Uh, we, <clears throat> though our sins are scarlet, we shall be made as white as snow. So one of the, the constant themes <clears throat> in Isaiah is the day of the Lord. And has a lot of different meanings. The day of the Lord is, is always a reckoning day. It's a day of, of judgment, a day when um, no more, uh, the, the, the time is, is, is run out. And so he, he speaks of the day of the Lord both as a day of judgment and as a day of hope. And we have to see the context when we when we see that phrase. So in chapter 2, verse 6, he says, you rejected your people, the house of Jacob. So he, he's now speaking to God. You rejected your people because they are full of things from the east. So the sin from the east, the idols from foreign nations have crept in. The fortune tellers of the Philistines they strike hands with the children of foreigners. They shake hands on agreements. Their land is filled with silver and gold. No end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses. Land is filled with idols. So each man is humbled. Each one is brought low because they bow to idols. Isaiah says to God, don't forgive them. Enter into the rock, hide in the dust to the people. The haughty looks of man will be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. So, verse 12, for the Lord of hosts has a day. Verse 17, the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Verse 20, in that day, mankind will cast away the idols of silver, their idols of gold. And the summation is the last verse in chapter 2. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath. For what account is he? Stop worshiping idols. Stop worshiping the, the things that man can make. Stop worshiping men. For behold, verse uh, 1, chapter 3, the Lord God of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and from uh, Judah, support and supply. And this goes on for uh, a number of, of, of verses all the way into chapter four, uh, when he again switches into a message of restoration and hope, where he says, in that day, and now the day of the Lord is one of restoration, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. So he is speaking again of the return from exile, the return from conquest. And um, <clears throat> then uh, in chapter 5, <clears throat> he pronounces uh, a number of woes, W-O-E. And these are, are specific prophecies. Um, where 
He says, because he will remove protection, these things are going to happen. So in verse uh, uh, 8 of chapter 5, woe to those who join house to house, who had field to field, and there's no room. Uh, the Lord of hosts has sworn these houses will become desolate. He's talking about woe to you who try to accumulate land. Verse 11, woe to those who rise up early in the morning that they may run after strong drink. So woe to you when you accumulate. Woe to you when you self-medicate with, with liquor, with uh, strong drink. And so he, again, 13 is the specific predictor. Therefore, my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. They're going to be led into exile. Verse 18, woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, the, the, the lying and the deceit. Verse 20, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Verse 21, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes. Verse 22, woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine. What a phrase. Heroes at drinking wine. And so it's, it all comes to a, a head at the beginning of chapter 6. And chapter 6 gives us a specific date. It says, in the year that King Uzziah died. So he's been prophesying in the reign of Uzziah. But in chapter 6, Uzziah has died. That would have been somewhere between seven. 40 and 735 BC. So Uzziah dies. The king of Judah dies. And it would not be unusual for the land to wonder if hope has died with him. So in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Now, this is a vision. Uh, the fancy word for it, a theophany, a theophany, when God shows up and, and, and presents himself, when there is no mistaking that he is God. Uh, we see theophanies throughout the scripture. When God speaks to Job, that is a theophany. God, God says, enough of this nonsense. I will speak and you will listen. That is a theophany. A theophany in, in Genesis chapter 12 when God appeared to Abraham. So a theophany is when God crosses the divide between heaven and earth and he makes himself known to man. And this is what happens in chapter 6. I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. We could talk the rest of the time on just that. He said, I saw the Lord. And the, the word that's used there is not the personal, but it's also not the, it's not Yahweh and it's not Elohim. It's, it's the word is Adonai. And so the when we see that uh, L-O-R-D without capital letters, that's the word Adonai, that is uh, 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 a one who is to be worshipped. 
And so he saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. When Queen Elizabeth died, did any of you see some of the um, the old grainy black and white pictures of her coronation? When, when as a, a very young woman in 1953, she was crowned as the Queen of England, there were six people carrying her train. So as she walked towards the front of the uh, the cathedral, there were six people, three on each side, carrying her train. Now, now think about how long that train would have been. Isaiah saw the Lord and the train of his robe filled the temple. That's allegory, of course, symbolism. God doesn't need a robe and he doesn't need a temple. He doesn't need a throne. But Isaiah, in his human sight, he was pointed to a Lord who said, enough of all this. This is a picture of the day of the Lord. I saw the Lord. High and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Now, do you remember the difference between seraphim and cherubim? Seraphim have six wings and cherubim have four. Seraphim starts with an S, six starts with an S. Cherubim sounds like a chair and a chair has four legs. So a cherubim has four wings, a seraphim has six. Um, seraphim is rarely mentioned in the Bible. Uh, it mentioned in um, Deuteronomy. So what was on the ark? Thinking, which was the one? In, cherubim on um, the ark. Yeah. Um, so the word seraphim. Um, I don't think it's mentioned in the Bible after Isaiah. Um, it, I, I think that uh, seraphim are, are rarely uh, mentioned in the Bible. Let me see if I have a note on that in my notes. Um, so this is the only place in Scripture where a supernatural creature is designated as a seraph. They, uh, the the literal, the, the root of the word either connects with serpent, meaning snake, or seraph, which means fire. And so either way, we get this, this terrifying six-winged creature that is uh, uh, hovering near the holy God, but even these beings can't look at him. Do you see what they do with two of their wings? They cover their face. So each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. With two, he flew. And all these supernatural, whatever they are, could do was worship. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So... The essence of this is that he has this terrifying view of God. There's smoke, there's noise, 
There's these flying snakes that are on fire. There, it's, it is a terrifying vision, and it is meant to be. God is not your co-pilot. He's not your buddy. He's not your wingman. He, he's not, he is God. He is terrifying. He does what he wills. He, he calls men, women to himself. He judges sin with the wrath that we can't imagine. And when we leap forward to some, sometimes I, I think I would have been better had I understood how terrifying God was and let it sit for a month or two before I understood what I had offered to me in Christ. For me, it might have been good for me to be uh, fully aware of, of my destiny in violating the purity of this holy God with my sin. And that's exactly what happened to Isaiah. He fell on his face, said uh, in verse 5, woe is me, uses the same word. You pronounce, I pronounced woe on all these nations in chapter 5. Now I'm pronouncing a woe on me. Woe is me. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in among a people of unclean lips. All of a sudden, Isaiah, who might have thought himself uh, a little farther down the road than other people because he was a prophet, he was he was. Uh, crying out on God's behalf. But once he became fully in the presence of God, he realized that he wasn't any better than anybody else. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm lost. I dwell in the midst of a people. And now my eyes have seen the king. And he uses Yahweh there, the Lord of hosts. I've seen him. I, I've, I've been in his presence. And what was the expectation? Think back with uh, Deuteronomy and Exodus. What was the expectation if you saw God? You die. You, you die immediately. And, and I don't know. I, I think that I, I want to dwell on the messianic prophecies. I, I want to dwell on the promise, but, but I don't think we get it unless we get this. That he is holy, and we are not. And we are destined for uh, an awful, awful future, if not for God's intervention. And in a very supernatural redemptive theophany. He does exactly that to Isaiah. One of the seraphim flew to me, he says, with a burning coal he had taken with tongs from the altar. And the word altar there is a Hebrew word that literally means altar of sacrifice. So from the very beginning, there was a sense that sacrifice was involved in redemption. And he touched my mouth and he said, 
Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. I'm speechless. I, I'm, I'm just speechless. He realizes his sin. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God demonstrates his love. And that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. Isaiah gets to experience a, a vision of what would happen in the uh, in the coming of Christ um, eight centuries later. And he got to experience what redemption would be. He feels ruined. He's dismayed. He expects to die. Not only does he not die, he is forgiven. He is forgiven. Do you remember in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 17, there is an event that we call the transfiguration. And in that, Jesus took Peter, James, and John to a mountain, and they received a vision. There was a theophany. Uh, they, they saw the prophets, Moses and Elijah, and Peter said, let's just stay here for a while. What did Jesus say? Now nah, we got work to do. We got to come off the mountain. Same thing happened here with Isaiah said, I heard the voice of the Lord. So immediately after his sin is atoned, immediately after he is forgiven, he is graphically reminded of his forgiveness. What does God do? So it's time to get off the mountain. You have work to do. And he said, who will I send to tell others this message? And Isaiah said, here I am, send me. And then he says, go and say to the people, and the prophecy unfolds, including chapter 7, where we get the sign of Emmanuel. So the first six chapters sort of let us know that in Isaiah, we have a a recognition of the sin in the land. And it's set in a historical context. Judah is going to fall even as the northern kingdom, Samaria, has fallen in 722. The northern kingdom at the hand of Assyria, the southern kingdom at the hand of Babylon. Isaiah is, is a prophet in all of this time and in chapter 6, we back up and we understand why he is so urgent, why he does all these wacky things. And if you read through the whole book of Isaiah in the next eight weeks, you're going to see some things where you go, okay, wait a minute. He walked around naked for three years. Yeah, he did. <laughs> uh, because that he, he was caught up in this, in this message. That's what God told him to do. 
Now we don't really understand it's sort of a drive-by comment, but we're going, he, he laid on his side uh, near a fire for eight months. Yeah. Why? Because that's what God told him to do. And he, we, we get a, a, his calling, his commissioning here to know that he was so moved, he was so transformed by this vision of who God is and who he is, that he could do nothing else except do whatever it was that God told him to do. And sometimes I, I, I think we need to be shaken out of our casual approach to salvation, our casual approach to church, our I've got coffee in one hand and my phone in the other. Oh, good worship, good, good message. Let me swipe to a book of the Bible. And, and Isaiah is not going to let us be casual. He's not going to let us regard him as anything but a holy and terrifying God. Similar to, I guess, where some, uh, where, uh, uh, Solomon ended up in Ecclesiastes. The end of all things is that the Lord is to be feared and obeyed. All right. Okay. Well, that's a lot. Um, we will dive into uh, Isaiah chapter six from a little higher viewpoint on Sunday. And uh, I'm looking forward to it. Any questions? That reminds me in that song, the last one that says, here I am. Yeah, I mean that's we get that we get lots of songs from uh, from the scripture that we're going to be looking at uh, on Sunday. I'm amazed Isaiah was even able to speak at all in that situation. I, I always have been, and I still am. God says, "Who will I send?" And the fact that he was able to find a voice only because his lips had been purified. Hmm? All right. Well, we will see you guys on Sunday. Thanks for uh, being part of us on uh, on a Wednesday night. Good crowd.